diversion from all these things. Thank you, thank you. Just put it there. Thanks. I thank the Lord that I have the privilege to be with you again. Let's turn to John chapter 10. John <clears throat> chapter 10. <clears throat> I read verse 22. Now it was a feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And here comes our scripture reading, verse 24. And the Jews surrounded him. It was not one person. It was a group of persons asking, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, as you read the Gospel of John, the question comes up over and over and over. Whose son is Jesus? His sonship is questioned. And in this question, really basically ask the same, are you the Messiah or are you not? How long do you keep us in suspense. Now, you can go back to the previous chapter, a very fascinating story, but the same issue pops up again. You remember the young man who was born blind, and Jesus healed the young man on the Sabbath day. <clears throat> and first they asked the young man, What do you say? Who is he? And then finally, they ask the parents, is this your son? Yes. And you remember what the teachers or the Pharisees says, this man, that is Jesus, cannot be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. So, the conflict was there. Some believed and some didn't. And again here in chapter 10, verse 24, 
They put the blame on Jesus himself. How long do you keep us in doubt? Now, what is his response? What is his response? I told you. I already told you. Now, brethren, let's stop for a moment. When Jesus cleansed the temple the first time, you read it in Desire of Ages, chapter 16, a fascinating chapter, uh, a fantastic descriptions of the details that you don't find anywhere else that you can trust like this chapter, chapter 16 in Desire of Ages. It, we are told that this was the announcement that the Messiah has come. Even Nicodemus saw the problem that the ritual become a commercial selling and buying. And if you read the chapter, I reread it twice before I came. Inspiration tells us that people came who were utterly poverty-stricken. They didn't have money to buy the offerings. In fact, in that chapter, you read that there were individuals there, they didn't have enough money to buy for daily food. And Jesus was weeping when he saw the desperate condition of some of those who came to this Passover. And you remember he cleansed the temple. He turned the money changer's table over. The money ran on the ground. Nobody picked up the money. Nobody dared to pick it up. But this was the announcement that the long-waited-for Messiah has arrived. A few days later, Jesus was in Capernaum, in the home of Peter. <clears throat> and you remember, four individuals brought a paralytic who couldn't walk. And the multitude around the house didn't let them in either. So they climbed up to the roof. They opened up the roof and let this paralytic down in Peter's home. What a miracle. What a miracle. And then... You can't read Desire Wages without bringing tears to your eyes. If you have a soft heart, that is, a heart that still feels. There, the paralytics, helpless. But the scripture says when Jesus saw their faith, 
Now that includes those friends who carried him, brethren. Are you with me? It includes the faith of those who carried the man. When Jesus saw their face, he says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now, brethren, it brought tears to my eyes when I read this story because the greatest need of that paralytic was not physical healing. It was a big need, and it would be still a big need today if, if I am paralyzed. I have a Hungarian friend who, over 40 years ago, had a, a car accident, and he is paralyzed from here down. Paralyzed. And... Uh, Probably will die as paralyzed. For him is a, is a number one need, probably. But for this man in front of the multitude was not the physical healing. When Jesus told him, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. A perfect peace came over him. He was happy, satisfied. He did not care anymore if he is physically healed or not. The greatest burden of his heart was peace between him and the Lord. But the Pharisees who saw this, you remember their response? They said, this man is blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And again, Jesus reading their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your heart? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on the earth. I tell you, Arise, take up your bed, and go home. The invisible miracle of forgiveness was confirmed by a visible miracle. Are you getting it, brother? The invisible miracle validated, confirmed, By a visible miracle. But the issue was, and the issue is, and the issue will be until Jesus comes, the sonship. And may I bring it a little bit closer? It's not only the sonship of Jesus, but it is yours and mine. Are we the sons and daughters of God? That's a salvation issue. That's a salvation issue. Oh, about 40 years ago, I was colportering, selling books, 
with a Hungarian friend of mine. We went to college together. He had a Jewish father and non-Jewish mother. He was a Seventh-day Adventist young man, 40 years ago. In fact, more than 40 years ago. The other day, I called him up, and I said, Bill, how are you? Uh, do you still believe in Jesus? No, he says, no, I don't. I said, you don't accept him as a promised Messiah? No, he said, he was not the promised Messiah. Brethren, it's a salvation issue. It's a salvation issue to recognize the Son Ship of Jesus. Now let's come back to this story in Matthew twenty not Matthew. John ten twenty four. How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I've told you. The works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness, the works. May I stop here for a moment, brethren, when it comes to the ultimate, ultimate evaluation of our lives. It's not our profession. Very important, very important, very important. But we are judged by our actions. By our actions. I can be nice, I can be courteous, polite, and if I am well educated, <coughs> which I am not, I always wish I had more, but uh, at least I would learn, you know, how to respond, how to sidestep critical issues, just to be kind, courteous, polite, but inside, rotten to the core. But outside, yes, I am fine. How long do you keep us in doubt? Now, <clears throat> verse 30. If you go to read verse 30, he gives the answer. Because it is a salvation issue, brethren. It was, it is, and it will be until Jesus comes. Verse 30, I and my Father are one. Jesus was telling them, listen, I am the Messiah, but I am not just an ordinary boy of Mary. I and the Father are one. Verse 31, Then the Jews took up stones to stone him again. Is it possible, brethren, I'm asking you, don't answer it publicly, I'm not asking you to 
uh, respond, but is it possible that there are truths that we reject as vehemently as the Jews, that we are willing to pick up stones because those truths are contrary to our expectation? Or just ask yourself that question, not publicly, privately. And Jesus says many good works. I have shown you from my Father, confirming his sonship. This is one of the strong points of the Gospel of John, emphasizing the sonship of Jesus. Many good works I've shown from my Father, for which of those will you stone me? Okay, if I have to die, at least I should know why I die, correct? Okay, tell me. What is their response? They said, verse 33, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself of God. Now, it is uh, extremely important. But brethren, <clears throat> I have a burden today. Uh, and my burden is the same as it was uh, a week ago. If you remember my sermon, uh, it was at the end of June, the last Sabbath in June. This is the last Sabbath in July. My essential burden is the same. Same. Let me just briefly, briefly rerun my sermon. Now, I'm not going to preach it again in details, but just, just to refresh you, okay? You remember what I spoke about? I said the story is found in Second Kings chapter 9 and 10. When you go home, you reread the story. Don't reread it now. It's... It's two chapters. It's a fantastic story. Second Kings chapter 9 and 10. And I told you that the story starts with a very, very unique event. Elisha, the great prophet, who asked a double measure of the spirit of Elijah. And he got it. Elisha calls one of the junior students in the schools of the prophet. I don't know how young that man was, but from the description, he was a young student. And Elisha tells him what to do and what to say. Do you get the point, brethren? what to do, and what to say. So your response, or what's expected from you, to do what you are told and to say what you are told. Is, is that clear, brethren, from the story? And the young man did exactly that. He went to the camp, 
anointed Jehu as a king, and Jehu obeyed the anointing. Are you with me? Do you remember the story? Jehu executed two kings. He executed or murdered the sons of the kings. He executed Baal worshippers or Baal worshippers. You pronounce it in English, but Hungarian is closer to the Hebrew, but let's not argue about it. When we go to heaven, we all speak Hungarian, but that's okay. (coughs) Until then, we struggle with this terrible English. (laughs) I have never learned it well enough. (laughs) With the W's, I murder the T-H's and other words. But brethren, that's secondary. But Jehu carried out the will of the Lord for which he was anointed, correct? In fact, I'm just repeating the story. In fact, the Lord was so pleased with Jehu that the Lord says, because you have done what I told you to do, four generations of your children will sit on the throne of Israel. It's quite a reward. Also, some of the children reigned only a few years. So, you know, four generations is not a long time. If you don't rule for 40 years like David and Solomon. But that's beside the point. Um, (coughs) Please reread 2 Kings chapter 9. And chapter 10. Uh, Let me underscore what I emphasized a month ago. There is one sentence at the end of his life. There is one sentence at the end of the life of Jehu... that makes a sad picture. As he killed the priests of Baal or Baal, he killed Jezebel. Jezebel earned it, didn't he? The priest earned it when Elisha, on Mount Carmel, gave them an opportunity. You read the story again on Mount Carmel. Elisha, now Elijah, I'm sorry, I, I better get this straight, otherwise you will accuse me, pastor is preaching heresy. On Mount Carmel, Carmel, Elijah gave them an opportunity to turn to the Lord. Are you with me? And they didn't. They didn't. They hardened their Life against evidence. What more evidence can you have than fire coming down, consuming the stone, the water, the sacrifice, everything? 
What more evidence do you need? But let's bring it closer to the life of Jesus. What more evidence do you need to be convinced that he is the son of the living God? Brethren, it is a salvation issue. And may I say, bring it home, it is a salvation issue whether you are or I uh, am I a son of God or a daughter of God. Our sonship, daughtership is a salvation issue. Very important issue. Very important issue. But the scripture says, and this is the closing thought of my sermon a month ago. The scripture says that Jehu did not turn from the worship of the golden calves. Are you listening, brethren? Here was a man who has done much good. Much good. In fact, the Lord rewarded him. He says, four generations of your descendants will sit on the throne. But Jehu did not reform himself. And I said, quoting Revelation 21.8 and 22.15, those are two verses, two verses, Revelation 21.8 and 22.15, that idolaters will not enter the pearly gates. So Jehu will not be among the saved. Sad story. A sad story. But I said uh, we investigate all these stories in the context of the great day of atonement because we are living in the great day of atonement. Is that correct? Now, I I hope you have no question. That's one of the cardinal teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's very essential. Now, I'd like to ask you a question that I have asked before. What is the essence of the great day of atonement service? Now, you know that every Israelite was required to participate. It was not optional. It was not optional. If you did not participate, you were excluded from the family of Israel. In fact, in those days, you were stoned. Now, today, we, we, we don't stone anybody. But in principle, in principle, the participation is still very important. Give me a few seconds.
So I'm asking again the question. In one sentence, how would you define what was the most important thing that the service of the great day of atonement accomplished? The most important thing, it determined who was a true Israelite and who was not. Are you with me, brethren? And that's still an issue today. <clears throat> still an issue. I don't want to go down that road. I have an important story to tell you. But listen, I almost started at 12 o'clock, so don't be stingy time-wise, okay? I started late. I'm not blaming the Sabbath school. Lorraine, I'm not blaming you, okay? You, you did a good job. I appreciate it. Isaac's special music. I appreciated the scripture reading. You have taken my time, you know, and I'm taking now yours. But it is an important issue who constitute the Israel of God. Now, there is a new theology called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism came from England. I'm not going to run the whole story because it's too long. The essence essence of dispensationalism is that God has a different plan of salvation for the physical, the biological Israel of today than for the Christian church. They separate the church from Israel. Now, the cardinal teaching of Protestantism had been for centuries that the Christian church replaced Israel. I meant no offense to our Jewish friends. You you, you follow me? No offense, but some truths have to be spoken, whether you like it or not, accept it or not, it is still truth. Just like Igor speaks with a bad accent, yes. But it is still truth. But brethren, dispensationalism teaches that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. There will be seven years where God will deal with the Jewish people separate from the church because the church will be raptured. This is not correct theology. Are you with me, brethren? But it is a salvation issue. Who constitute the Israel of God. But there is another important thing that's happening in the sanctuary, and that's the marriage of the Lamb. The marriage of the Lamb. You and I are invited to what? To the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is that correct, brethren? I hope you have no questions. We are invited. 
I always enjoyed weddings. <clears throat> when I was not an Adventist, I, I didn't grow up as a Seventh-day Adventist. I enjoyed as a secular man what was offered at the reception. You know, I, I couldn't care much about the ceremony. It was beautiful, beautiful. But the reception was exceptional, you know. Eating, dancing. I'm not promoting dancing, you understand, but I was not a Seventh-day Adventist. We did dance. And there were pretty girls there who looked for future husband. And we men looked for future wives, so it was an excellent occasion. <clears throat> but today I am interested in marriage in a much more elevated sense. Christ is the bridegroom. The church is his bride. And the wedding takes place in the sanctuary, in the most holy place. And when Jesus comes, we will attend the reception. Let me tell you a story, true story. You are not free to tell anybody else, correct? Thirty-five years ago, I conducted my first wedding in the Cleveland Hungarian Church. Thirty-five years ago. We just came from New Jersey, and there was a young couple, a beautiful young lady, late teens, maybe 20, 21, but... She was really nice, really nice, pretty, kind, courteous, everything. And the young man, <clears throat> uh, he was not an Adonis. You understand the name Adonis? Greek god of male beauty. So he was not, okay? But he was young, handsome. He was courting her for a year. Of course, the mothers made the arrangement, big reception and everything. I conducted the wedding. Thirty-five years ago. I witnessed the disintegration of that marriage. It was a painful experience. I witnessed it. She remarried. He remarried. He remarried three times. Thirty, uh, thirty-five years passed, and I was invited to the Hungarian Baptist Church just across the street. If you go out to this cemetery on the main entrance, there is Neville Street. Neville Street. There is 
the Hungarian Baptist Church. I was invited to attend one of their services in the evening. So I entered the hall and I bumped into the mother and the daughter, the daughter whom I married 35 years earlier. But the mother, she said, Pastor Bozanski, you are guilty. I was what am I guilty 35 years later? Pastor, you are guilty because of the suffering, the agony, the torture, the mental suffering we have gone through witnessing the disintegration of the marriage of our daughter, my, our only daughter. She was the only daughter. He was the only son. And people were coming to the church. And she was undressing me allegorically, okay? Allegorically. She was undressing me. I am no good. I am bad. Uh, I should have never done this. I'm guilty. And she didn't give me a chance to say a word. You know, one sentence after another, Pastor, you know what you have done. You know the suffering we have gone through. He was not fit to be a husband. He was not fit to be a husband. And you should have never conducted that marriage. But brethren, I did not know. Are you with me? I did not know. I did not conduct his second and third marriage, okay? But the, this is just between you and me, okay? But I was totally undressed allegorically in front of that congregation who were coming in. I had no chance to defend myself. You know, I felt like when the faithful and true witness tells Laodicea, I advise you to buy of me white raiment so that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. But I was totally undressed over there. Shame, everything. Because I wedded her daughter whose husband was not fit man to be a husband. And brethren, here I come to the issue and please keep in mind I am still in the sanctuary. I am still have a burden to call your attention to that important uh, process of Christ marrying the bridegroom, marrying the church, the bride. May I say, several months ago, 
I recommend that you, you, you study these 10 essays. You remember? The last generation theology, the 10 essays written by Paul Kevin, uh, Kevin Paulson. I have read all 10, lots of them, lots of them, twice. I'm going to reread it the third time. It helped me. It helped me to make sure my own salvation. To be a fit man. I have a little booklet here, Sanctuary, the Atonement, and the Fit Man. Oh, about 150 page. I didn't write it. I could not. I am not good enough to write a book, okay? But let me quote from the first page. Before I quote it. Let me ask you, what was the very last portion of the ritual in the great day of atonement? Now, you remember, we live in the great day of atonement. And uh, the great day of atonement in ancient Israel was very important. It is just as important in spiritual Israel today. Because the ceremony or the participation in the ceremony determines who makes um, up the remnant. Are you with me, brethren? The remnant, the true Israel of God, and who will be among his wives. Because Christ married, he is a bridegroom, correct? And the church is his bride. There is a wedding. And you and I invited to that wedding ceremony. Now, what is the last portion of that ritual? I'm speaking of the earthly ritual. The earthly ritual. Not the heavenly. You remember when the high priest took out all the sins from the sanctuary it was a transfer through blood transfer through blood I repeat it again it's extremely important theologically transfer of sin through blood the sacrifice of Christ he took all the sins confessed it on the head of the scapegoat, you remember? And then a fit man was chosen 
to lead that scapegoat into the wilderness where there was no food, no water. You know what was waiting for the scapegoat. And here is what inspiration tells us. And I, I, I am reading it now so that you meditate on it. We read that the scapegoat makes a mighty struggle to escape. Now you have to go to the spiritual prophecy. You don't find this in the book of Leviticus. But we, Seventh-day Adventists, give as much credit to the spiritual prophecy that we can trust, correct? I, I hope you don't have any problem in this area. I, I settle that for myself. Uh, you have to settle it for yourself. But let me read, read it again. We read that the scapegoat makes a mighty struggle to escape, but he is held fast by the hand that leads him. If he should escape, Israel would lose their lives. I saw that it would take time to lead away the scapegoat into the land of forgetfulness after the sins were laid on his head. E.G. White, Spalding and Megan Collection, page 2. Brethren, Serious issues are ahead of us. I think last day theology is an extremely important theology. I believe the 144,000 will make that fit man. And inspiration tells us we should strive, we should strive to be among the 144,000. That's my goal. I like to encourage you to strive again. It is an attainable goal, brethren. That's the beauty of it. It is an attainable goal. We can be victorious. We can be victorious. And may the Lord help us to strive lawfully. Amen.